On a Thursday night in the spring, a teacher and a group of students gather in a room for a ceremony and a reception of sorts. It was intended to be a very solemn and a very important affair. This was going to be a very big day. However, there is bickering and boasting amongst the students about their class rank. Now, I went to a very small school and pretty much everyone knew their exact class rank based upon their GPA. But in this class, on this night, the students won't settle for being in the top half or even in the top 10% of the class. It seems that most, if not all, of the students felt they deserve to be very first in the class. And related to this, they seem to have high hopes of their next station in life. And I'm sure you've heard this as well at this time of year. Students go off to college. They begin to talk about their majors. And you hear statements like pre-law and pre-med. And parents seem to look off into the distance to imagine their future senator or their future surgeon. Those were the types of discussion being held on this Thursday night. So in the course of all this scheming and posturing, the teacher finally takes control of the class. Graduation day is near, and the teacher has only a few moments left to impart lessons to this group of students. So the teacher interrupts all the petty talk and does what any great teacher would do. He teaches. But he's not just any teacher. He is a master teacher. He doesn't teach only with words. He does an object lesson that his students will talk about through the ages. He wraps a garment around himself, the uniform of a profession much lower than his own. He fills a basin with water. Now maybe at this point, the students believe that the teacher will perform some sort of science experiment. He had once before changed the elemental makeup of water. Perhaps they were expecting new wine and a toast to their standing in life and their rising status in the world. But this was not the case. The teacher had an important lesson to teach, and he was willing to get down and dirty to do it. Though this was a somewhat formal affair, the students arrived with dirty feet from the travel. So the teacher takes the uniform that he now is wearing and the basin And begins washing the feet of the students. No doubt taking the actual grime and filth from his students upon himself. And at least one of the students recognizes the meaning of this act. And attempts to save the dignity of the teacher. But once corrected, the student relents. And this teacher proceeds to wash the soiled feet of the entire class. With his head down in a humble posture. And what follows is his teaching. He asks, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Today at Taylor Street is a special day. It's the day in which we honor our graduates. 
And I've been blessed to know Madison Webb for the last several years. And as many of you probably know, she is the grandniece of Virgil Webb and has a great legacy of faith in Hobbes in the local churches here. And what I like about Madison is that I never have to wonder what she's thinking because she'll tell me. And sometimes she tells me really bluntly, like, I hated that, Lance. I'm like, okay, or I love that, Lance. But you always know exactly where she stands. And when I was preparing this lesson and was reading John 13, um, I thought of Madison when I read how Peter is the one who starts to protest to Jesus. Because you know that all 12 of them were thinking something. You know that all 12 of them had something to say. But Peter is the one that had the boldness to pipe up and to say it. And Madison has that boldness, and I love her for it. There's this great story in the Bible uh, when Jesus asked the 12. He, he, he really pins them down. He says, who do you say that I am? And they're all quiet. Uh, what's the right answer? I don't know. You go. No, I'm not going to. And, and they're quiet. But then Peter's the one who chimes in. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Madison knows this. She knows Jesus. She's called upon him as her Lord. And she's not afraid to tell you that. Now, when it comes to words, Noel is on the other end of the spectrum. Noel is quiet. I remember when he was in grade school and we had a program that was called Rock that our intern ran, Clayton Stewart. And where, where is Noel? Did he get away from me? Noel, hey, you're back there. Um, and when Noel would come to Rock, you could tell that that was like his thing. Because he had a lot of siblings at home at the time. But Noel would come to Rock, and that was his thing. And I think it's about that time that I gave him a silly nickname. I started calling him Leon. And if you're real smart, you probably can figure out why I turned Noel into Leon. And it's a silly, stupid nickname. Um, but I would call him Leon just to try to get him to smile. Because when he did, his smile would just light up the room. And recently, Noel told me that just a year ago that his life was off track, that he liked focus, that he liked purpose when it came to school. And then he found his purpose. He met a man of God that also happens to be a recruiter for the Marine Corps, and he's actually here this morning. And if you've seen his table out front, you know that Noel is enlisting in the Marines. And that dream has given him the focus and has helped him to finish high school and, and just a few months ago, Noel was baptized into Christ. Now, Noel is quiet still, but he has a confidence and a poise and a strength that is, that is befitting of not just a Marine, but of a soldier of Christ. And yesterday, Madison and Noel walked across the stage. And that moment signifies all the hard work, persistence, and learning that goes with earning a diploma. But it means something else as well. The cap and the gown and the music is one way that adults welcome you into our club. So, Madison, Noel, welcome to our club. We see you as adults now. Um, this is one way in which we say you've been a child and we've treated you as a child, but now we see you differently. And I believe that Jesus, on the night before the cross, washes his students' feet is a graduation ceremony 
of sorts. I believe he's telling his students, you can do what I do. How important is that? Take a young person and say, you can do what I do. Because Jesus is telling them, because ultimately what I do is I serve. This is a ceremony that is a call to love and a ceremony that is a call to service. And then the master teacher closes this lesson with an if statement, implying his class has a choice. He says, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed. And then it's right there. If you do them, Jesus says, I put the knowledge in your head. I've modeled what this looks like. This thing that I do that I'm calling you to do, I've modeled it. Now it's up to you to choose to follow through. To our graduates, teachers in the school, teachers in the home, and teachers in the church have put plenty of information in your head. You've repeated it back on tests. You've written it down for papers. You've stood before the class. You've done your, your class presentations. But will you choose to apply wise teaching to real life? Because ultimately, that is the gauntlet that Jesus has thrown down. He empowers them, and then he gives them the choice to use that learning. So today, I want to talk about choices. Because I believe that that ultimately is what Jesus leaves his followers with, is I've told you, I've modeled it, you'll be blessed if you do it. I have a friend who is fond of saying that life is about choices and how well you choose is how well you live. And I generally believe that to be true. Choice can have almost a magical effect upon us all. We like to think of all the small, little, tiny choices that add up to make a really big deal. And we even have a phrase for that. It's called the butterfly effect. Um, and I want to tell you about a huge butterfly effect that centers upon a single choice. Now, we probably only live in the world that we live in today because of a choice of one man. Now, you probably have never heard of the name Stanislav Petrov, but on September the 26th, 1983, he was manning a Soviet satellite uh, station that was the first alert in the event of nuclear war. Now, this was at a particularly contentious time in the Cold War, and all systems were on high alert. And Petrov is doing his job like any other day when suddenly, boop, there's a single blip that shows up on his screen indicating that a nuclear missile had been launched from America to the Soviets. Beep, 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 beep. Suddenly there's five more blips. Now, according to protocol, Stanislav should have pressed a button. And this is like the big red scary button. This notifies his commanders that a nuclear attack from America is underway. And if they follow their procedures, they have only moments to launch a counterattack, which likely would have resulted in a counter-counterattack from America. Now, these windows of time in which you could detect that the other side has launched and gives you time to launch was at the very heart of what was called MAD, which was mutually assured destruction, which basically is the theory, we won't actually go to nuclear war with the Soviets because both sides would be completely annihilated. There's only one flaw in this theory. What if one side accidentally launches their nukes and then the other side launches theirs and then the other side goes back and forth? Um, And so Stanislav sees this blip 
And if everyone follows procedures, you and I are likely not living here right now in the lives that we currently have. But Stanislav Petrov had a choice. He got to thinking. He said, this system that we're using, it's pretty new. It's not really been tested that well. And it doesn't make sense that America would start a nuclear war with six measly missiles. So Stanislav chose to do virtually nothing. He chose, correctly, not to press the button. His higher-ups didn't have the choice if they needed to send the missiles back to America or not. In the moment, he made a choice that we benefit from still today. Now, choice is a theme throughout all of the Bible. We can go all the way back to the beginning of the book, and Adam is given boundaries, but he also was given free will. Now, I want you to think about Adam's choices here, because I'm going to twist a phrase, but it makes all the difference in the world. Adam was meant to live a godly life, and that he was meant to co-govern the world and image God to the world. Hold on to that phrase, godly. Can you say it back to me? Godly. Godly. Okay, that's, that's phrase one. Okay, he was meant to rule and subdue the world under the king that was God. So phrase one is godly. But what does Satan tempt Adam and Eve with? He says, eat of this fruit and you will be like God. Do you see the difference? We've gone from godly to like God. It's such a small twist of phrase. That's point one. Many moral choices come down to one question. Are you doing this to be godly, as in like God in your nature, but under God in your status? Or are you choosing as if you were God in your status, but not like God in your nature? Graduates, when you come upon a crossroads in life, I pray that those two phrases stick in your mind. Is this choice godly or am I acting godlike? Adam chooses to act like his own God. He chooses to be godlike. And his choice, like that of Stanislav Petrov, echoes throughout all of time. But rather than preserving life and peace, Adam's choice destroyed peace and brought death upon the earth. So how do we make godly choices then? Romans 12 says that we should be transformed in the renewing of of, of our mind. And I couldn't agree more. But I want to give you a tip as to one way that I believe that the Spirit can transform our minds to make godlier choices. So I want to fast forward to Moses then. After Moses leads the people right to the verge of the promised land, Moses lays out two paths. He says, I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. He tells the people, you're going to a land with homes you didn't build, with wells you didn't dig, and vineyards that you didn't plant. It's like in the wilderness, you had to follow God. You had the pillar, you had the fire, you had the manna, you woke up, you just followed it. It's just what you did. But what about when you get to that place? What about when you're affluent and you have plenty of wealth and you have plenty of power? Will you still choose God then? And what Moses is exhorting the people, he's saying, don't wait until you have it all to make that choice. He says, choose this day on the verge of your freedom, who you will serve. The idea here is to make a pre-choice. I feel like that our graduates and our older teens are like those Israelites right on the cusp of the promised land. In childhood and in the early teen 
years, parents make many of the choices. Okay, it's many times the parents that are dragging the kids to church events, they're paying for camps, they're leading the family devotional. But at some point, the child has a choice. Graduates, older teens, you're like those Israelites. You're about to be given your freedom. You are so close to the promised land. And I, I've got to tell you all, adulthood is awesome, okay? Um, but choose now. That first Sunday that you're away from home, are you going to wake up and go to church? Because no one's going to make you do it. The night before, will you set your clothes out? Will you set the alarm? Because it's your job now. Are you going to join a small group? Are you going to go to Bible class? Um, to our teens and to our families, I would say that your youth group has a whole lot planned for the summer. Um, make the pre-choice now. What about relationships? About who you date? About who you let into your inner circle? Don't wait until you meet that person and you fall in love and then ask if they meet the standards that God has set in his word for those kinds of, of relationships. Make the choice now. I would argue pre-choices lead to godlier choices. This is my third and final point about making godly choices, and that's it will cost you something. The very essence of the life of Jesus is about sacrifice. Long before a hill and a cross, many of the choices cost Jesus something. First, Jesus chose to become man. And not just man, but to be born into a stable. And he chose to be born a peasant in a conquered land. And then when Jesus chooses the 12 men to follow him, he doesn't choose the best of the best of the best. No, he chooses ordinary, unschooled men. In fact, he tells them, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And when Jesus chooses a life of obedience to God, it cost him something. There's a point near, near the end of David's life that he must make a sacrifice to God to stop this plague. And this plague is killing lots of people. And um, David goes to offer this gift. And somebody else says, David, hey, I have some livestock. Take these to give to God. And David has this great line. He says, I won't give to God that which cost me nothing. Godly choices will almost always involve sacrifice. It's going to cost you something. Jesus says, before you join my kingdom, count the cost. And then he tells a parable about kings going to war, and he tells a story about a man that's going to build a tower. And it's like Jesus is saying, I choose you, and now you get a chance to choose me back. But before you do, count the cost. I want to tell you a story that I think perfectly illustrates this point that serving God is going to cost us something, that we have to take risk. David had three men that were called the three. And that's a thing in the NBA, you know, uh, they have three kind of stars, and we call them the big three. Boston had their big three, and then the Heat had their big three. And Golden State has the big four now, which I guess that someday there'll be a team that has a big five. Um, but David's big three, or three, goes all the way back to the cave at Adullam when David was hiding out from Saul. And so if you read the accounts of these three men, they had attacked on behalf of David. They had gathered the spoils of war. They had defended their ground. These were rock-solid men's men. And now David is in this cave. And the Philistines have moved in and taken control of David's hometown of Bethlehem. And from this cave, David says, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water 
from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Now, it's not a command. And he may not have even wanted a literal drink of water. He may have just indirectly been kind of positing, oh, that it were possible to go back to that well to get a drink of water. That would mean that the Philistines have been kicked out. But the three, they hear this. And for no military strategic reason, they do it. Without an army behind them, David's three most important men go to Bethlehem where the enemy is encamped. And I don't know if they snuck in, if they were stealth. I don't know if they had to kill people. I don't know if they had to fight. I don't know what this looked like. When I get to glory, I want to find out because this mission sounds incredible. But they draw water from the well just to bring it to David, their king. Against all odds, they perform this incredible feat. And they bring the water to David. Wow. How humbling that must have felt for David that these, that these great and mighty men would do this for him. Not because he ordered them to do it, but because they were so eager to serve him. They made this choice to honor their king in this way. Now, there's a lesson here for us. We, too, have a king. In fact, our king has been called the son of David. Do we serve to please him, even absent a direct command? Are we willing to do even irrational acts of kindness for our king, Jesus? Graduates, church, choose to do something crazy to please your king, not out of command, but out of devotion. And so the three, they deliver the water to David. And I bet when you give a gift, I bet, I bet that you're like me. I bet you can't wait for the person to open it up. Guys, have you ever given your wife jewelry? What's the first thing that you do? You're like all over her, like hovering, like, oh, here, I'll do that clasp or I'll, I'll put that on. You can't wait. Have you ever baked something for somebody? You bring it to them. They dig that fork in and you're just watching them. You can't wait for them to take that first bite. And I can imagine that the big three are just waiting for David to take that first big, full gulp. But David just can't do it. David says, you risked your lives for this. Drinking this would be like drinking your blood. And so David does something powerful. He chooses to pour the water on the ground. But this is not a waste. It is a beautiful act. Because the Bible says he pours it out before the Lord. He sacrifices that to God. And one can't help but to think of Mary as she breaks the bottle of the perfume and she anoints it on Jesus' body. And the people that are sitting around at both of these acts are saying, what a waste. But something given to God is never, ever a waste. I've placed this story at the end because it's powerful and it's lovely and it's a story to live by. But don't, church, be tricked into thinking That these choices are just once-in-a-lifetime stories. There's another man that poured something valuable out. But not in a moment. He made thousands of choices over years and years for his Lord. The Apostle Paul, and one of the last things he may have ever written, says this. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Church, 
you won't accidentally happen upon a life like that. It's made up of thousands of pre-choices and choices, many of which will cost you dearly. But a life like that does start with one big choice, and in fact, it's the ultimate pre-choice. Because it costs you your life. It starts with saying yes to Jesus and claiming him as Lord. And the Bible teaches that we say yes to Jesus, we make the pre-choice to Jesus by following him into the waters and we're baptized. If today is your day and you like to do that, or if you have other needs of the church, you may come as we stand and sing.